as sure as eggs are eggs, you'll need to be thinking about what FCA permissions and approvals and so on you will need. And this is very serious stuff because in general terms, if you get it wrong, it's normally a criminal offence. Hello, and welcome to the Founder Shares podcast, brought to you by Hutchison, a law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina, that helps founders and entrepreneurs in technology and life science companies start up, operate, get funded, and exit. So whether you're already an entrepreneur or want to be one someday, or are just fascinated by the stories of how a business goes from idea to success, or not such a success, this podcast is for you. Today's guest is Henry Humphreys, managing partner at Humphreys Law, a law firm based in London that focuses on technology, media, and startups. We've had the pleasure of working with Humphreys on a number of matters, and I appreciate the perspective of non-US-based attorneys doing similar work to what we do at Hutchison. Because while startup ecosystems can at times seem very local, it's important to maintain a global perspective. And that's part of what we're talking about today, how the legal startup scene is different here, and what we can learn from lawyers like Henry. So since 2008, Henry had been working at a large law firm both in Hong Kong and in London, and he felt like there was a gap in the legal market, especially when it came to tech startups. Within tech, as a sector particularly, it is very well suited for so-called boutique, smaller, more nimble firms to be advising, because you just need to cover a fewer number of bases to do the work. In London in particular, there just aren't very many of those sorts of firms around at all. We provide a bit of an um, alternative for uh, clients looking for a smaller, more nimble set of advisors. Humphrey's Law has grown to about 20 lawyers, which is still small enough to move quickly for startups looking for legal guidance to make quick decisions. To start our conversation, I asked Henry about some of the differences he sees in the UK versus the US market. A lot of people here historically have looked over the Atlantic with, with envy, uh, particularly obviously West Coast, but in general terms into the, into the US uh, at the development of the scene there. The size of the checks that are written into into even seed companies and the size of the market there and in some cases the absence of stifling regulation so you, you can have the you know classic american dream where you raise a seed round raise a massive series a get every get your product onto a billboard in every state and all of a sudden you're a unicorn and you ipo which um you know one or two have actually done obviously famously google only raised one institutional round. Um, so the, the, classically, the startup scene has, has never been anything like that here. Really, at the start of my career, when I started getting into it, as in, in into sort of venture tech, it was very much less developed than it is now. If you wanted to raise seed funding, uh, really the size of the rounds were, were, in, were incredibly small in, in retrospect, you know, a couple of hundred thousand pounds, that, that sort of thing for your, for your seed. Um, companies that then did a Series A of say you know a million yeah, that was a, that was a substantial sum. Uh, also as well there was a real kind of cliff after that stage quite often because the number of investors re- willing to write larger Series B Series A plus type checks were were very few. And also as well it was quite hard to persuade American investors to come and invest here when they could just invest on their own doorstep. On Sandhill Road, or you know wherever that may that may be, that gradually changed over the years um, through into this uh, decades, and was 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 
ticking nicely up until around about, I'd say, 2017 or, or so. And then really, since then, there was a huge sort of hockey stick uptick in terms of the level of capital going into the system. Uh, and I think London really established itself as being the lead uh, city for Europe um, and the lead centre outside of probably West Coast US. Um, so just what you might think in terms of uh, the sort of venture scene. And, um, you know, the size of the rounds got a lot bigger. It was much more common to see Series A type rounds in the sort of low single digit millions up to up to higher sums. And the seed rounds got larger and crucially as well, things sped up. So it was much more common to see rounds taking place much closer together. Whereas in the olden days, you know, somebody might do a seed round and you may not see them then for 18 months or two years or something. And then they sort of do the next one and they'd be sort of smaller sums. So everything sort of sped up famously. And then we went towards a sort of crescendo in um, 2021, uh, being the absolute high point and an outlier in terms of all the metrics you want to look at really amount amount of capital raised amount of capital invested all, all these sorts of things um and then 2022 was was more difficult there were issues in uh, with russia invading U- ukraine and war on the continent there and crucially rising interest rates and then 2023 has been an extremely difficult year for um technology startups to to say the least really so that that's a sort of positive history of of what i've seen but I think that you know the good news here is that the industry has um, firmly established itself and has gone from being much more of a sort of strange outlier um, that, and something that people didn't know very much about. And uh, I think it'll come back, and um, you know London will remain a, a very robust centre for um, venture investment going going forward. And we're seeing some signs of that already. Actually, there's a uh, seems to be more priced rounds going on. Um, so yeah, so there we go. But uh, how much do, do, does that uh, is that a familiar story, or is that new to you? Or it, it does. I mean, the the timing may be a little bit different, but the, the the general trends seem to be very similar. And I would say maybe on some of the East Coast experience or in the Southeast where we're based, some of that description is also similar. Where we look uh, to the West or to the Northeast and look fondly at some of the size of the checks that are getting written and, and with the ease of some of the diligence that has to go on to get those size of checks, you know, whether that's in California or New York. But I think for many of our companies that that has progressed some or was trending in the right direction in the last few years and then maybe has hit some more headwinds here in the last year, year and a half. But, you know, I was talking with one of our partners the other day. It feels like in some respects it's, very similar to the start of the, the, the pandemic in some respects where I feel like a lot of people collectively held their breath with regard to investment to wait to see what was going to happen on larger uh, economic questions and now seem to be realizing it's not going to be as bad as they were anticipating and are starting to kind of want to do deals with the, the pricing that we had seen previously. So I think it's, again, moving in the right direction. That's good. When, when, from when would you say that? Had you been seeing that? Is that a recent thing or...? Yeah, I would really say it was the end of kind of the end of last year towards the beginning of this year is when that that collective breath holding happened. And, and now just starting to see evidence of kind of moving in the more positive direction. OK, well, that's good. I mean, often the UK is thought to be, you know, a couple of quarters behind the, the US in terms of trends and, and so on. Um, yeah, we, we had a big sort of holy breath moment here with our mini budget um, that has short lived 
uh, prime minister that um, came and went as a result uh, decided to uh, declare some radical tax policy. Uh, perhaps hadn't been thought through as well as she might have liked, but the, the, the net result of that, I think, was that um, you know, I think the conservatism and caution had been building for quite some time amongst buyers and investors. And by quite some time, I mean really from the beginning of 2022. And then by the time it came to October, and we had this 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 disastrous uh, mini budget. I think that really slammed the the brakes on here in terms of the transactional machine. And um, really, I think that went through to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. What was that? A couple of months ago, which at the time seemed like a complete disaster because it was its well known cornerstone of the U.S. venture scene. They back banked half the. U.S. tech companies, or, or some such, um, but in in retrospect, perhaps it was a very neat bookend for that period. SVB here was rescued by HSBC, now rebranded re as, as as HSBC, and perhaps actually in in retrospect, it actually accelerated the end of that, the end of the bottom, should we say? And um, you know, there are now you know, green shoots looking forward. I would say that interest rates though remain um, concerning, if not problematic. Um, you know, they, they keep going up here and inflation is still much higher than the government would like. And I think that's the case in lots of other European states, um, which is a kind of new thing. Because again, back if you sort of chart that history that I went through, um, really from 2008 onwards, uh, you know, the cost of money has been, was getting closer and closer to zero. And now it's not. And that is a major shift for a lot of people that has not been seen for you know a very long time. So it remains to be seen what the what the effect of that is. So uh, yeah, let me ask you a question. Aside from kind of the funding environment, you, I mean, you mentioned the impact of stifling regulation. You've mentioned kind of government tax policies. What are some other impacts or I, I guess issues for UK companies or UK startups that? maybe aren't seen here in the states well okay the classic one is the you know the american dream i mentioned there you know ends with the ipo or the, or the massive exit as it were and um you know, classically the, the the issue with 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 european ventures is that there just hasn't been uh enough of those major exits to should we say seed the venture tech scene with the next generation of people coming through um, I think you know that for sure that um, changed, um, and in some ways, the, the disappointing thing about the the slowing down that's happened here is that really before that, you'd seen the first sort of generation of of winners come through, particularly the UK fintech cycle, and either occasionally list um, or raise some very large late stage US size style of, of funding. Yeah, hopefully that will continue, but but for sure the 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 size of the eventual exit can essentially be a limiter, and, and you know for that reason, uh, people have, have always or long thought about the, the so-called Delaware flip, where you eventually flip over into a Delaware C corp, I think it is, isn't it, and um, then carry on raising money in the in the US with a view to, to achieving a a much larger exit. Um, uh, so that that's one factor. Um, I mean, the other thing is, you know, the, the, the U.S., um, obviously there is a ton of um, federal and state legislation. You'll probably shoot me pretty quickly if I say there's, there's not. But um, 
you know, it, it is very different in Europe. You've got many more languages being spoken, tens, hundreds of languages potentially. Um, the, the the rules, regs, laws, and so on are very, very different state to state, and um, just culturally very, very different country to country. So you know that that idea of creating a new app or product or whatever it may be, and then just marketing it to millions of people overnight or whatever. You know, classically, that's just been a lot harder to do in uh, in Europe than it has been in the, in the US. Well, yeah, going back to your earlier point, I think it's hard to really overstate the impact of, of successful exits and successful exits kind of on a massive scale, not only to have kind of, you mentioned, repeat uh, founders who come back and then start a new company, but then even if they don't start a new company, having those resources to come mm -hmm. to get reinvested into the ecosystem kind of tend to generally locally, wherever they had their successful exit. Um, we see that here, not only in the Triangle, but kind of just in the Southeast, that once you have hugely successful companies that have those exits, it's going to do great things for other startups kind of in that area and surrounding it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, very often, as you know, the, the, the principal founders do very well out of it. And, you know, at the far end of it become the likes of um, Elon Musk and and, and the, the PayPal mafia and, the, and these people or whatever. But there, there's layers and layers of it, isn't there? I mean, they say with Facebook, Google, these others, even if you owned a very small percentage of the ESOP, the share option pool, you you just do incredibly well out of it. So you, you do get this huge filtering down of um, of wealth. The the other thing they've said about the UK, which I think is is slightly unfair, but um, People do say it, which is which is that people invest in in property here in real estate rather than in businesses and tech. Hmm. And uh, the nature of real estate finance and owning real estate here is it's just a bit different to in the in the US, I think. Um, and you know, there's a very limited supply of it in central London, for instance. Um, and again, for the last however long it's gone only what one way which is up so turning around and suddenly investing it into high risk technology ventures for some people is is anathema um we have a couple of very good tax breaks here though which are um unduly complicated in, in my opinion but they do work very well i mean eis is the principal one enterprise investment scheme uh, which allows you to invest into qualifying companies and take a 30 percent income tax Rebate. So, you, uh, if you if you invest hundred thousand pounds and you get to the end of the year and you've got the corresponding income tax liabilities, you can get thirty thousand pounds off your tax bill. And then also, no CGT when it comes to sell the shares. No capital gains tax when it comes to sell the shares, which is enormously attractive um, and generates a huge amount of uh, investing in in the UK. Um, and there's there's a couple of other schemes as as well, but that's that's one of the more well known ones. So. That's a very active bit of the, the UK market, and I'm, I'm not aware of uh, other jurisdictions that have got anything completely similar to that. Obviously, there are various um, US uh, schemes and so on, but um, the EIS in the UK is very uh, very attractive. So, when you see kind of these companies as they're getting started, where I mean, where are your sources of, of new companies coming from? I mean, as I think of the US, you know, you've got a lot of spin-out companies coming out of the university systems. You have, you know, a lot of these bigger companies with their R&D companies spinning off, kind of startup companies. You have, you know, young students kind of growing up out of the universities into companies. Is that similar to where you see your founders coming from in the UK or is it kind of a different path? Yeah, re real combination. Uh, we get a huge amount of work just through referrals. 
um, can be quite a tight knit community, and founders talk to one another. So we we do get a lot of we do get a lot of work just from founders who who recommend us. You know, sometimes they're exited founders who've already been through that journey, or, or you know, we, we've just done their Series A, or you know, whatever it may be, um, and they recommend us on. Uh, yes, the universities, university spinouts. London's very very active in terms of um, events and. Uh, I suppose one of the key things it's got going for it is it's just a hugely active uh, social networking scene here. So if you want to go out any night of the week, you, you can probably go after some sort of tech drinks of some uh, description. So if you, you know if you want to meet lots of founders, you, you can go um, go there. Um, uh, and then and then quite often they're segmented by sectors. So um, she was a, a, we run our own drinks. We had one drinks event last week, and actually then. I went to one on in the crypto and fintech scene where, where we do a lot of a lot of work. Um, we often get sent work as well by investors in our network because uh, founders go and ask them uh, which lawyers to to use. Uh, we write a lot of copy on our website. We write a lot of um, how to guides and um, commentary type pieces that people read those and um and come in um but yeah a real mix of different places um we've got you know just a really good network that if you add together all the years of the people involved in the firm is decades old and there's a lot of people floating in and out of that network and you know as and when they know people who are raising or they're raising themselves they they refer that work in but probably pretty similar to, to you trevor do you think of yeah, I mean the, that that kind of the flow of work and how we kind of connect with the clients that we work with is, sounds very similar. Um, you know, the best way to to go about it is have one of your existing clients or existing people that you work with kind of recommend somebody else in. There's kind of no better way to make that initial connection. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it goes in waves as well. You know, you have waves of people that come from a particular source, and then it you know slows up, and then. People come from different sources. Um, I mean, I suppose the interesting thing at the moment is that there's there's a real kind of shuffling of the deck amongst the venture tech scene here. I would say uh, a lot of ventures have, have uh, failed, much more so than in previous years. I'm sure the stats will show, and these are the ones that have not raised the next funding rounds um, and, and been left to die. Um, and and the 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 communities or the you know the um, you know, the, the the stable of uh, tech ventures here has been thinned down for sure, um, and that's enormously painful for those people who've put years and years of work into their ventures and everything else. But it it, it does mean I think there'll be a there'll probably be another wave in a couple of quarters time, I think the beginning of next year perhaps. And I my prediction is we'll, we'll start to see a lot more seed ventures come through and come back in. And um, in some areas, particularly AI, which is just ultra, ultra hot here, you're seeing that already with huge activity in the seed space and massive rounds being being raised. Yeah, and that was going to be kind of my next question for you is kind of, first off, let me ask you this question. You know, as, as attorneys kind of going into this business, you have opportunities to kind of practice law in a number of different fields. So what was it that kind of drew you to the technology space in the first place? It's a great question. I suppose I'd always want to be a. Um, I suppose I ended up being a corporate lawyer, doing uh, bigger ticket, uh, cross border M and A, lots of um, US M and A. We the the US firm I was working for used to act for a lot of US 
buyers who used to come and buy uh, UK and European companies and businesses of, of, of different kinds. And um, I was always attracted to doing that because it was it was a very broad uh, skill set, really. You end up doing bits of project management. You end up doing bits of corporate law. You get to learn lots of other bits of law about other specialisms because you're always playing in and helping to manage specialist lawyers of other uh, kinds and you're just very close to the deal being done and the structuring of the deal and the, the creative side in terms of working out how a deal works and how the various bits of it are going to fit together and trying to optimize the result for the clients we've always found uh, very interesting um, and then I've always just been really interested in in tech um, of all different kinds and its ability to grow very very fast and change things very very quickly so if you combine those two things together you sort of naturally led to getting into the sort of venture tech scene of um of different kinds and um i'll probably do that for the rest of my career i would think and um much as it's probably very nice being a real estate lawyer and advising on um the same real estate transaction over and over again then um you know i'd rather rather be doing this although my real estate lawyer friends will probably come and kick me as a result um including those that work for this this firm but um, yeah well from the technology front you know it's always going to be changing you know there's always going to be something new there's always going to be that next advance and at least from my perspective it's part of what keeps the job super interesting yeah and it's always changing um during that sort of bull run that i mentioned uh we ended up doing a lot of work with with companies doing things on on the blockchain including trying to raise money using token issuances, ICOs, ITOs, this this sort of thing. You know, that is an incredibly involved area. And actually, in the end, some of our work on the financing side, one or two of the deals um, ended up being effectively dual-track deals with money being raised using conventional finance, but in, in some cases uh, also uh, by issuing um, tokens or structuring Arrangements by which tokens could be could be issued. So they're very hard to do those deals and to do them uh, properly. But but um, particularly the sort of convertible debt rounds that we were doing in particular, people seem to arrive at a formula where um, you'd make arrangements to say that as and when or if the company did do a token issuance, and it may not do, but if it if it did, then you would effectively have some preemption rights on issue built in so that the equity investors could participate on that um on those sorts of rounds so there we go a bit of a segue but um yeah that's an example of something that that just came out of nowhere very very rapid went from being completely niche uh that only a few people were really even aware of or, or sort of getting into to being something that a large chunk of clients were, were actively looking at and thinking about and and in some cases going going forward with well, you touch on it because it's it's really one of the interesting parts about this type of a practice is you have the opportunity to really be, I don't know, shaping law in a way that, you know, the regulations of law not, hasn't necessarily caught up to what it is that you're doing. So you talk about kind of the ICO issuances, you talk about some of the issues arising now with AI, you're advising clients based off of information that is not necessarily caught up to the technology yet. So I've always found that to be a very interesting aspect of, of our, our technology practice and, and trying to guide these clients through those types of issues. So, I mean, what are some, aside from blockchain, what are some interesting technologies that, that you're seeing in your companies or, or things that are exciting you to work on right now? Uh, without a doubt, the hottest thing in town at the moment is, is, is AI 
possibly almost also uh, climate tech, um, and then obviously chips and um, and uh, so on. A very uh, much in discussion at, at the moment in terms of who makes them and how much you can buy them for. Um, but it, it goes in um, cycles, and the cycles seem to go very fast and and be speeding up even um, really. But back when I started, um, you know, fifteen years ago. Um, you know, it was all about e-commerce and uh, building a website, building, um, bolting in payment mechanisms, and then selling a widget to everybody on the planet and pricing your company accordingly. Um, but these days, that's what everybody does, and the the cutting edge has moved the other way into, as I say, more, more exotic things. I know there's no such thing as a as a typical founder, but. What are you seeing as far as the trends with regard to the founders that you're working with or kind of the just the organizational structure of, of the companies that you're working with? You've seen any trends there that are new? Yeah, I mean, it, again, it sort of comes in waves. I mean, the blockchain space is, is a great example because in sort of 2016, 17, uh, we did have a wave of, of founders come in, a wave of new work. And it seemed, you know, anecdotally, Quite often they were much, they were younger, you know, 20s, early 20s, should we say, were, were completely separate from the kind of traditional finance world of banking, lawyers, accountants, and, and so on. Um, that, that really changed in 18, 19, um, when uh, the founders coming in much more likely to have come out of a major bank or finance institution of some kind, you know, be, be older, be much more credible, probably more likely to be, to be onshore. Um, so that's an example of it of it changing um, quite quickly. Um, I saw some stats the other day saying the average age of a, a founder in the UK is um, currently, I think, late late 30s, I think, which is somewhat surprising. But actually, you know, when when I look across the portfolio of clients that we have, actually, that sounds about right to me. Really, um, we've we've got a few that are led by young and thrusting uh, youngsters and. Um, uh, but by and large, yeah, it seems thirty seems to be seems to be about um, about right. But it's, it's a very broad, um, very broad spread. And as I say, I think probably it will now change again because there's been a, a thinning out of the on the company side. And I think you'll see a new wave of, of companies come through, and they'll, they'll probably have a different uh, demographic and profile them, themselves. Speaking of which, probably for what it's worth, I think the the diversity of the profile of the founders coming through has much improved uh, for the better. In the sense that you see much more, much wider range of different sorts of people coming through to be founders. Um, certainly, at the start of my career, it's much uh, rarer to see people outside of the white middle classes. But I think the the range of people coming through is now broader, which can only be a good thing. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think that's consistent with what we see. And I still think we've got a long ways to go, kind of diversifying mm. kind of our founders and who has access to capital. But, you know, hopefully taking steps in the right direction there. Yeah, I think when I say much improved, I think it's possibly come from a low base. But um, uh, <laughs> right. as, as you say, lots, lots still to be uh, to be done. And yeah, I mean, a- access to capital within the UK generally is is a big topic. Here and um, you know, as you say, lots to be done for, for sure on that uh, on that front. So, what are some things that 
a young company should think about when entering the UK from the United States. So, you know, we had a company that was looking to expand out into the UK or into the European market. What are some of the things that you would advise them to kind of be thinking about before they take that step? So we did, this would be a sort of post series A, B kind of company that's probably raised capital and is new into Europe. Is that, is that right? I'm I'm imagining it would be because generally, at least from what we see, if they're starting from the U.S. base, they're not looking to expand markets that quickly until they've reached that kind of funding round. Yeah, so. yeah that's the sort of profile that we see. Because um, obviously, if you're a seed stage or you're just a pure startup in the U.S. and you want to come and operate here, then you may as well just incorporate here. Or why are you doing it? Um, and and you know, v- vice versa. Give the same advice here that if it's you know American founders, American business. Why would you incorporate in the in the UK? Um, so yeah, the, the companies we see, yeah, but very often they've raised a few rounds of institutional money. They've probably got a few institutional investor directors on the board. They're a proper company now. They're what you people call here sort of scale up. Uh, they've got a war chest of cash to either go and start buying companies or to set up operations here. Um, so yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the threshold questions of what do you want to do? Uh, do you want to uh, buy an existing business? which some people do, and is obviously a, a quick way of uh, building um, presence. Obviously, m and is fraught with danger in the sense that it doesn't always go that well. Um, and there's lots of cases of it not going uh, particularly well, but there's lots of cases of it going uh, going good. So you can you can come and buy a competitor, smaller competitor, whatever, and then just bolt that in. So we advise on those sorts of deals all, all the time. Or you could go um the ruse of setting up a, a subsidiary company here and just start to build it up from scratch hire people in locally uh fly people in from elsewhere and have them working here under visas or in, or in some way, other, other way um uh, and looking at doing it that way or, or classically the other thing to do is uh, for, for particularly for software companies you know, your appointed distributor here and other places uh who's not part of your group um, but you have a contract with them saying that they will distribute your products within the within the territory. Um, so there, and there's there's other ways of doing it with licenses and depending on what you might want to do. So I suppose you've got the first threshold question there of structurally how do you want to um, do it, and then from there you'll have a lot of different considerations depending on what you're wanting to do. If if and maybe this is your question, if it, if it's more of a a case of just wanting to incorporate a subsidiary maybe hiring a few people and starting to build something from scratch, then there's a lot of very basic stuff you'd be thinking at in, about in terms of just incorporating the company at the company's house, which is which is very easy to do, do it next day and pay a very small fee to, to do it. Uh, but you'll need to find an accountant to run the company books and do the accounting and report to HMRC. They could also help you set up payroll Payroll taxes here deducted at source by the by the employer, so you need to get that sorted um, pretty uh, pretty quick and get that that done well. If you're hiring people in, you probably want some employment contracts, UK employment contracts. UK employment law is very different from US employment law; it varies state by state, doesn't it? Um, but there's some big differences. As as far as I understand it, in California, you can't have any restrictive covenants at all, so no non competes so is just just unenforceable. Um, whereas you, know, you can here and probably other states in the in the in the, in the US, um, but you need some employment contracts probably, um, and then I suppose then start working out what you're going to do with the um, business. So if it's going to be the trading arm here in the UK, 
contracting with customers, then you're probably going to want to have a have your contractual terms on a contract between the UK subsidiary and the customers, and then for that contract to be subject to English law, and ideally to be drafted up by by UK lawyers to make sure it works for um, uh, for you. Um, and then look at the regulatory side as well. If it, if it's a fintech business of some kind, then for sure. For sure, as eggs are eggs, you'll need to be thinking about what FCA permissions and approvals and so on you will need. And this is very serious stuff because in general terms, if you get it wrong, it's normally a criminal offence for uh, the company, but also the directors of the company uh, and possibly the contracts are then void as well. Um, and it, it may mean that um, you damage your reputation horribly within the jurisdiction as, as well. So um, you, know, you need to give some thoughts. Um, uh, thought there, but I'd say um, you know find a good set of accountants and find a good law firm um, who can come and help you and try and plot a critical path out and work out which things are really important to do now, which things you can leave till later on safely, and which things you don't need to do at all because they're not relevant or they don't apply. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fine point, and you know, seems somewhat simplistic in, in, in some respects. But yeah, I think that the biggest issue in, in moving into any jurisdiction is having the right advisors and counselors familiar with that area to to kind of guide the company at that point, and having people you can trust that are on the ground there to to guide the issues that you're not familiar with. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. So when you see companies looking to kind of enter into markets outside of the UK, I mean, is it all similar considerations? Um, as, as like if they're trying to enter into the US market, how do you how do you advise your clients as, as they're thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, same considerations, I think. I mean, it seems to be the advice that I've seen given that you, you immediately set up a US subsidiary, which becomes the employer, becomes the taxpayer for US purposes and becomes the contracting party for your uh, U.S. operations, and if you you know if you don't do that, then uh, you've got your U.K. company exposed directly there to U.S. Uh, liabilities. But yeah, go go and take tax advice, accounting advice, and and legal advice. And then you know the key thing is obviously it varies state by state. So I understand, and um, you know just because you've sorted out something in Florida or something, and you then want to go off and start advertising throughout. Uh, North Carolina, then um, you know the, the 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 advice you take in Florida may very well not apply. But I mean, this is your realm rather than mine. No, I mean, I, I think that's that's all spot on. But yeah, I'm also interested too. What's the general impression of companies as they think about entering to the U.S. market? Is it viewed as something that's uh, formidable? Is it viewed as something that is is easy to do? Is it a mixture of that? How, how do you see companies thinking about that? I think classically it's probably been viewed as being quite hard. Yeah, typically you'd, you'd set that that company up and then you'd need to hire a sales team. But if you're a UK founder trying to manage a sales team on East on West Coast time from London, um, then that's immediately quite challenging just from a, a time perspective. And, and you're just not there. Um, so... We've had feedback from lots of founders that that is quite a hard path to follow. Um, and then who, who exactly is in charge on the ground in, in the US? The ones that have been successful seem to have either moved or one of the, moved, moved one of the founders out there or one of the founders lives there anyway and is on the ground um, running it. And then, of course, you, you're potentially competing against American competitors who've been very heavily financed by their own 
funders and, and then as before the the levels of finance may be multiples of the finance you, you've raised and they just have a, a very great deal more firepower when it comes to uh, hiring people in advertising grabbing market share everything else so do, do companies tend to view i guess expanding into the european market as as an easier option or is it the same challenges just a different direction I guess it, it it really depends what sort of company they they are and where they're going, what they're selling, where their sort of interests lie. London's an enormously cosmopolitan place, and um, a large proportion of founders are actually uh, from overseas or come here to do their do their venture or or their maybe first generation um, here anyway um, doing it, and may have some cultural links to to somewhere else, and that that can be. Um, a major factor often very well in the markets they're then uh pitching to either because they just know that market well or there may just be some sort of tactical reason um uh, for doing it that that way and so that seems to be a factor but it, it really um depends that the fintechs we have for um choice of jurisdictions for trading is, is quite heavily influenced by uh, regulation and regulators and the approach of regulators and we, we've seen that with with crypto in particular Famously, lots of different places have taken different views and changed their minds or not uh, given a view at all and then suddenly given views and, and everything else. Um, so just really, sorry, that's not a very good answer, is it? But um, uh, yeah, just really, it really depends. Um, some ventures here do very, very well and just stay really UK only. Um, again, some of the fintechs do that and can do that because London is such a big market for financial services. Um, others, the more sort of... Um, should we say that the sort of marketing tech, ad tech, event tech type ventures uh, that are really in a sort of volume game looking to sell their products and software to a huge volume of people are probably much more interested in um, going for the US and looking for domination there or um, whoever else. But there's lots of different ways to do it. I mean, you look at a lot of the European ventures that have come into London and then out into the US, US, you know, they've started in other places, Estonia, Latvia, other other places. Estonia, I think, has got ten unicorns, most of which are in London. I think wow. a large number of which have ended up floating in London or being based in in London. I'm, I'm, I was not familiar with that. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, so, the, um, I think Bolt is one, which is the the rival to Uber. Uh, that's that Ukraine founded by Ukrainian um, founders. Um, one of I think Pipe Drive, one of the big CRM uh, systems. Uh, famously, Wise or what's called TransferWise, which is a fintech Estonian founder. So these businesses have ended up in London, and I'm not sure about Pipe Drive actually, but certainly Wise and and Bolt. And um, and there we go. And then back to our point about sort of seeding the next generation of founders. I think. You know, that helps people in London in terms of the employees working for those companies that end up being large and either exiting or raising late stage financing. And then also a lot of that capital returns home uh, with the founders to their home state and, and seed to the next generation of entrepreneurs there. Well, this will be a bit of a, a, a switch, but I wanted to ask you, as you think back on, on your career, what's... What's one of your favorite transactions that that you've worked on, or the favorite company that you that you've worked with, kind of to your career to date? Uh, well, we can't we can't say too much about transactions and particular um, clients. Um, I mean, in this market where it's very difficult to raise 
finance um, and the deals that are going through it are sort of very difficult. I mean, I think some of the best deals we've done have been the ones where it just has been enormously difficult for a number of commercial reasons, but we've managed to actually push it through and get it done. And in fact, this year, there's been a, a high uh, percentage of those. Um, you know, very often, they're quite interesting. From a sort of um, strategic perspective, because often the companies, companies raising, are running out of cash and uh, there's at least three options on the table, which is um, selling to a competitor. Sometimes that is a US competitor uh, or raising the next equity round. And then that could be an equity round led internally or one led externally uh, or running out of cash altogether and going bust. And the, the three often are run together at the same time. And it's only towards the latter part of the process that we, you work out which one is going to it's going to be. Um, and then the ones that actually result in a successful transaction are very um, satisfying, not least because um, you know, it's an enormous relief for the founders, uh, for the um, uh, management team, the employees, and, and the company lives on and um, you know survives through. So, right now, the deals of that kind that we're doing are very um, satisfying, and each one of those that completes is a uh, is a big tick for us for sure. Yeah, always nice to feel like your advice, your counsel, and the the work that you provided made a, a huge difference, and then to be able to see that impact for founding team and their employees and. Always a positive thing. Yeah, and then in terms of clients, or they mentioned client names, but um, I suppose yeah, at the end of end of the day, lawyers are our people. You know, we, we're here giving the benefits of our um, uh, advice, which is which has been um, which is driven by the experience and training we've we've had over many many years, decades in most cases. Um, you know, it's a hard job and that experience is, is hard won. So the clients that recognize that and um, value your counsel and aren't seeing you as a sort of commoditized document drafting vending machine of some description uh, are often the, uh, the most the most um, the nicest clients to, to work with. And, you know, pleased to say we've got lots of those um within the firm and you know increasingly if you just if you just want a document of some description uh increasingly you can probably go and find it on the internet somewhere um but you know use it then at your own risk and as we both know just because you've got a document you found on the internet may or may not mean and probably doesn't mean that the, the key stuff that you really need to think about has been thought about at, at all Exactly. No, I can't. I can't agree with you more. But I, I did want to touch on something. You talk about hard won wisdom. Uh, you know, we are the Founders Shares podcast, and so I like to ask all of our guests. You know, if you could share one piece of advice uh, with somebody who's thinking about starting a company, or in your case, even thinking about starting a law firm, you know, what would that that advice be? Um, starting a law firm, um, gosh, hard hard work. Um, starting a company or starting a law firm, I'd say the main thing is um, other people say it, don't they? But there's this phrase, uh, "This too shall pass," um, which is that um, uh, in in times of great stress and difficulty, uh, things will pass. It won't always be like that, and it'll, you'll probably get through it a lot quicker than you thought. But equally, in times of great success and excitement and everything else, that too will pass as well. And um, 
you know, I think it's very key key to keep a very level head and try and um, uh, keep that at the back of your mind, and particularly so during these you know these 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 um, turbulent times in tech and um, and more globally. I think particularly when you're leading any sort of business, it's um, you know you are always overwhelmed with any number of small tasks, management tasks. Your your inbox is always full right, right up to the brim. Uh, but it's very easy to get lost in that and miss the more medium term, long term uh, goals, and um, to keep one's eyes set on the, the horizon rather than staring down and, and getting lost in the in the nitty gritty. So that would be my um, uh, the benefit of my my experience. Well, it's great advice. And, and Henry, I really appreciate you taking out the time today to talk with us. I've really enjoyed our conversation and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, you too. Yeah, good to good to meet you on this one. And um, yeah, I really enjoy working with the team at Hutchinson and uh, really like working with you guys and um, hope to see you on some future transactions. That was Henry Humphreys. You can find out more about Humphreys Law at humphreys.law. That's Humphreys, H-U-M-P-H-R-E-Y-S dot L-A-W. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Founder Shares podcast. If you're a founder or business owner and need legal advice, be sure to check out our team at hutchlaw.com. That's hutchlaw.com. We have the capacity to help you out with just about any legal need your company may be facing. We're passionate about the innovation economy and ready to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. The show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Trevor Schmidt, and thanks for listening to the Founder Shares Podcast.